When people are fighting for their lives, when their whole livelihood is at stake, when they've lost everything, uh, if you can't put politics aside for that, uh, then you're just not going to be able to. Yeah. Gee, that Governor DeSantis sure is a good guy, isn't he? <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets and the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Greatly honored to have you here with us. Uh, Nicole Sandler, our friend, uh, occasional guest host on this program, and yesterday... Our guest on the broadcast from down in South Florida, where she lives and rode out Hurricane Ian over the past week. Uh, she mentioned this point, the fact that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, as a freshman congressman in 2013, one of his very first votes was a vote against federal aid for New York and New Jersey following the devastation uh, at the time of Superstorm Sandy. Remember that? Ron DeSantis was uh, unambiguous at the time, according to the New York Times. He said a federal bailout for the New York region after Hurricane Sandy was an irresponsible boondoggle, a symbol of the, quote, put it on the credit card mentality that he had come to Washington to oppose and to expose. Wait, you mean Ron DeSantis actually played politics with people's lives during a disaster? He what? said, I sympathize with the victims, but his answer was no. They could not have his vote for that much-needed federal aid. Uh, should he ever pay any political cost for that? Because since then... As you may have noticed, his career has skyrocketed. He's now seen as the GOP's likely presidential nominee. Should Donald Trump decide to not run in 2024 or perhaps even if he does? And yeah, nearly a decade later, as Ron DeSantis's own state confronts the devastation and costly destruction wrought by Hurricane Ian, 
DeSantis, who is now governor, is now appealing to the nation's better angels and, as the time, Times notes, betting on its short memory. That, even as he was on Fox News this week with Tucker Carlson making the case for federal disaster assistance to be paid in full up front by the federal government for 60 days. As you say, Tucker, we live in a very politicized time. But, you know, when people are fighting for their lives, when their whole livelihood is at stake, when they've lost everything, uh, if you can't put politics aside for that, uh, then you're just not going to be able to. Yeah. yeah. Don't you know when it's the right time to put uh, politics aside, Desi Doyen? <laughs> yeah. Now, to date, uh, President Biden has affirmatively responded to every single one of DeSantis's request for disaster aid. Uh, that just days after a swaggering DeSantis had sent undocumented Venezuelan immigrants from Texas for some reason up to Martha's Vineyard, using, by the way, Florida taxpayer dollars to do it and to prove that he's more willing to turn the machinery of state against specific political targets when he wants to. Going on to suggest, by the way, that the next plane load of immigrants might land near President Biden's weekend home in Delaware. That, of course, was before Ian took aim at DeSantis's state, and suddenly he decided, oh, he needs the federal government after all. For the moment... Uh, he's playing nice. The present circumstances have inspired a less swaggering posture toward a leader whom DeSantis has long called Brandon as a recurring troll. Ironically, said David Jolly, a former Republican congressman from Florida, quote, there's nobody in America that Ron DeSantis needs more right now than Joe Biden. More than that, Jolly said, a governor who self-identifies as unswerving in his principles now finds himself with little choice but to push for storm relief actions, quote, antithetical to his professed ideology. I think professed being the operative word here. Correct. Uh, does he actually have any ideology? It's all, well, I guess it's political ideology. It's not actual, you know, political principles. Jolly said he held those convictions strong in the House. I doubt he will hold them as strongly in the governor's mansion. Well, clearly he is not. This week, DeSantis said he was, quote, thankful for the Biden administration's efforts so far, moving to place himself in the tradition of above-the-fray leadership from past Florida governors who negotiated catastrophic weather events on their watch. The president and the governor have each made a point of saying publicly that they and their teams are in touch. That's good. President Biden said uh, that uh, DeSantis, quote, complimented me. He thanked me for the immediate response that we had. I'm sure uh, DeSantis took no joy in hearing that. But we need to be clear about this. Biden acted immediately. And the reason we need to be one of the reasons we need to be clear about this is because for the last several weeks, Republicans have been running around pretending that Joe Biden has not been quick to react to uh, disasters such as the one in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, which uh, lost its water for years after for months. I'm sorry, for months after for years. Uh, that state's governor and its Republican state legislature had ignored problems essentially with the water system in Jackson, Mississippi, which was then completely knocked out once once one of these 
another one of these once-in-a-thousand-year flash flood storm events ended up hitting Jackson. So let's just be clear. Biden has been responding very quickly to these uh, a load of disasters over this very cruel summer, this very climate changed uh, summer. Yeah, he's been very quick. And a lot of people don't necessarily understand that a governor has to ask formally for that assistance. Biden doesn't doesn't just go out there and give, give it. it he, to ha- him, right. he has to be by law. He has to be asked for it. Oh. So if he's slow to respond, it's because they're slow to ask for it. Although he did uh, send FEMA down there very quickly, pre-station them yeah, prior to the... those things he can do. But when it comes to the federal assistance, Not that's only he law. can do, he did do. Yes, there are other presidents who did not do that, uh, who shall go, you know, without being named <laughs> Donald Trump, George W. Bush. Anyway, uh, President Biden suggested on Thursday that any political conflicts with DeSantis were irrelevant in these times, noting, quote, this is about saving people's lives, homes and businesses that even after DeSantis back in February had baselessly claimed that Biden, quote, stiffs. Storm victims for political reasons, insisting that the president, quote, hates Florida. <sighs> Whatever, Ron. I, I, you know, I don't enjoy saying it, but now is absolutely the time to point out how folks like Ron DeSantis and his party have been ignoring and even worse, lying about the dangers of our climate crisis, which is now yet again coming home to roost in Florida and in the Carolinas after a brutal summer of storms and flash floods and droughts and heat waves and wildfires all intensified by climate change that these same jerks like Ron DeSantis pretend doesn't even exist, even as their own constituents pay the dearest of prices, too many of them with their own lives, and as the rest of us are left to cover the costs of their deceptions and their lies. And if we don't call them out now, particularly just weeks before DeSantis and a whole bunch of other liars and deniers like him will be on the ballot, then when do we call them out? I mean, it, you know, it, it's 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 like the, the, the gun industry. They always say, oh, we're not going to talk about uh, guns after there's been a mass shooting. That's exactly when to talk about the need for gun safety, because otherwise they forget about it. They move on. And then the next time you have to wait until another, you know, mass shooting comes up. You talk about it then. Well, now is not the time to talk about it. Well, when is the time to talk about it? Now is the time to talk about it. Under DeSantis, the insurance industry in Florida has been collapsing in no small part, yes, due to climate change. Florida homeowners will pay a great price for uh, that collapsed insurance industry, but so will the rest of us in federal dollars, which DeSantis voted against, I must remind you, when other states were in need of those federal dollars. And they're going to need Florida is going to need it big time right now and for many years at this point. As uh, NYU sociology professor Eric Kleinberg noted this week on MSNBC, development over development, particularly in vulnerable and coastal areas in the U.S., is stuck in a repetitive building boom, destruction and rebuild cycle. 
no matter how unsustainable that has become in the era of climate change. Unfortunately, all the evidence we have tells us that we're going to continue to, to, to rebuild and, and to build more. Uh, in fact, there's a world of people who are really serious about uh, climate change who are suggesting we start to think about how we retreat productively to uh, prevent catastrophes like this from happening. Uh, instead, we continue to subsidize development uh, on, a, on a massive scale. And, and, and frankly, I don't think it's sustainable. Uh, you know, one of the really big issues we have now is that when there's a disaster, whether it's New Orleans or New York, we spend billions of dollars just building back what we had before. And unfortunately, the earth that we live on now is a different earth and the climate system we have is a different climate. And so if we build back what was there before, it's just going to go under whether it's one year, five year, 100 years. But we need to build differently. We need to build smarter. And we can only do that if we take climate change seriously. To be honest, I'm, I'm pretty concerned that given the leadership in Florida right now, they're going to make some very bad decisions about what to do next. Yeah, I'm very concerned about those bad decisions in Florida as well. Yes. Uh, you know, and I should note, it's not just in Florida where we keep building and rebuilding on these coasts, on these coastlines, these, you know, where we are told by climate scientists we should not be building, we should not be living, we should not be developing. It is not just Florida. It's coasts around the entire U.S. It's also not even only coasts. It's, you know, areas, uh, you know, where we're running out of water. It's areas that are prone to wildfire in a climate changed area. Uh, but for right now, uh, the question is Florida and what is going on in Florida and what will well, who's going to pay for the disaster that is, you know, still unfolding, but is going to be wildly expensive and in no small part because, well, Republicans wanted to pretend there was no climate change, pretend there was no problem in the insurance industry. We will be joined. Uh, let's take a quick break here. We will be joined uh, momentarily by Thomas Frank. No, not the what's the matter with Kansas guy. <laughs> not that Thomas Frank. Correct. The other Tom Frank, the reporter who has been warning about climate change impacts for years at E&E News to discuss the cost of that building boom to the insurance industry in Florida, and frankly, to the rest of us in the nation today. That and more is straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Can't walk away from it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
As the remnants of the storm continues to roll up the southeastern seaboard and power remains out for millions in Florida, residents of the Sunshine State are only now beginning to assess the breathtakingly widespread damage and destruction left in the path of Hurricane Ian, a climate change intensified storm, according to climate scientists, which made landfall on Wednesday as an incredibly powerful Category 4 storm, leveling, leveling parts of Fort Myers, Cape Coral, and Naples, sweeping away homes, roads, infrastructure, major bridges near the coast, but also resulting in major flooding far inland, where most residents do not have flood insurance. It's a big state, and as we discussed on our previous broadcast, some areas of Florida are more used to such storms than others. One potential scenario may have uh, that many had seen as a worst-case scenario was a direct hit on low-lying Tampa, which hasn't had a direct hit in more than 100 years, and thus has become densely populated with both commercial and residential buildings in locations that would stand little chance of surviving a direct hit from a powerful hurricane. Well, at least that threat was averted, but the scenario that we did see was not all that much better. With a massive storm crashing into Fort Myers with wind speeds just shy of a Category 5 striking near high tide, leading to both record storm surge and record rainfall in many places and not just by the coast. The Fort Myers region had not seen a major hurricane landfall since 2004's Hurricane Charlie. And despite the known risks of rising sea levels and climate change intensifying extreme weather disasters, the relative lull since then in major hurricane landfalls in the state may have induced a false sense of security in many parts of that state. Over the past nearly two decades, hundreds of thousands of new residents have flocked to the state as Florida's real estate developers in concert with state and local officials fueled a building uh, building boom that placed even more homes, more businesses and more people into harm's way. That over years when the state's largely Republican leadership took pains to deny the realities of our worsening climate crisis. Just last month, according to The Lever, on Thursday, Florida's governor and Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis spearheaded an initiative to bar his state from even considering environmental factors such as climate risks in its investment of billions of dollars of retirement savings for teachers and firefighters and other government workers. That, as DeSantis, running for re-election as governor in about five weeks, has received more than $800,000 of campaign cash from oil and gas industry donors. All of that comes in contrast to the now all-too-real financial woes that Florida homeowners will now be facing, along with the state of Florida itself, which will be on the hook to make many of its residents whole again, somehow. On Thursday, Moody's Analytics issued a preliminary damage assessment from Ian's destruction, finding, not surprisingly, the property damage and loss to economic output is expected to be about 45 to 55 billion dollars in damage and 7 to 10 billion dollars in lost output in Florida alone. But long before Ian 
Florida's insurance market was already buckling. Previous storm payouts had caused most major insurance companies to flee the state. As CNN reports, that left Florida in the hands of small in-state insurers with limited resources. Six of those companies were declared insolvent this year, even before Ian. And homeowners in the state were already paying nearly triple the national average for homeowner insurance. That according to data from the Insurance Information Institute. But as Thomas Frank of E&E News reports today, Hurricane Ian is expected to financially ruin countless people in Florida whose homes were not covered at all by flood insurance when the storm inundated the region. The personal financial losses are are a reflection of Ian's intensity and the failure of millions of Americans nationwide to buy flood insurance, Frank argues. The federal government's National Flood Insurance Program, the dominant source of flood coverage in the U.S., protects only a tiny fraction of homeowners. Almost all of them are in coastal areas. But, he notes, Ian's web of damage was unusually widespread as the hurricane drove storm surge onto coastal areas and triggered rivers overflowing and flash flooding across inland Florida, where almost nobody has flood insurance. The problems are likely far larger than most appreciate at this still early hour, it seems, as Ian continues to cause havoc in other states as well right now. As Frank wrote with Daniel Cusick at Politico on Thursday, Hurricane Ian's path of destruction in Florida cut through some of the fastest growing counties in the nation, pulverizing communities whose populations have doubled and tripled in recent decades during a period of deceptive atmospheric calm. Their headline there at Politico sort of sums things up, quote, profit drove a 30 year boom. Ian smashed it in a day. Joining us now is Thomas Frank, an E&E News Climate Impacts reporter and a Pulitzer Prize finalist for explanatory reporting, which is good because this mess needs quite a bit of splaining, I'm afraid. Tom Franks, uh, thanks for uh, joining us today on the broadcast, sir. Great. Great to be here, Brad. I uh, first your coverage has been wildly helpful in recent days. So thank you for that uh, as as we sort of begin grappling with what I think is a multi pronged problem here for Florida right now for Floridians and frankly, uh, Tom, for both the nation whose taxpayers are likely to, you know, have a huge price to pay here for what I see as wildly short-sighted political choices in the Sunshine State in recent decades, and for the insurance industry itself, as you report, has already begun to collapse in Florida even before Ian struck this past week. Am I overstating the magnitude of these concerns as I try to figure out where to even begin here? You are not. Uh, Yes, the insurance industry in Florida, um, the truth is, it's been a problem for 30 years since Hurricane mm-hmm. Andrew hit the state in 1992, and it's just it's never really gotten back to the way it was before 1992, and frankly, the way it is in most states. There's just um, there, there's not the kind of robust private sector markets you have really everywhere else in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and and what happened last few days is going to make a bad situation 
you know, pick your adjective, horrendous. Yeah. Um, and and the, the truth is, nobody knows exactly how bad it's going to be because mm-hmm. that's going to take weeks, months to figure out as people try to start filing claims and so forth. But I don't think anyone thinks it's going to be anything but bad. Um, and 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 bad in several ways it seems and and yeah. to sort of start unpacking this there are at least two different major concerns as I read it when it comes to the insurance market the ability to cover all that has happened here homeowners insurance and flood insurance they right. both seem to pose different problems uh, flood insurance not covered by homeowners insurance and has to generally be uh, purchased by the from the federal government so let's start with homeowners insurance you you wrote uh, uh, presciently, by the way, just a few weeks ago about the instability of the state's homeowners insurance market that resulted in six Florida insurance companies declaring insolvency in the state. That was even before this storm. What happened right. and how has it fallen uh, now to the state to, to pick up the slack? So the basic structural problem you have in Florida is that the insurance companies you have in Florida, they're not your all states, they're not your state farms, they're not your big national insurers that have billions and billions of dollars in their reserves. So they can pay off claims for something like Hurricane Ian. Those companies, after Hurricane Andrew, they left. They said, no, we, we, have, we can't win in Florida because we don't want to sit around here for another hurricane that's going to cause you know, $50 billion in damage. Mm-hmm. So as they vacated the state, they were replaced by a bunch of small regional or local insurers with names that I, I don't even know them because you've never heard of them. <laughs> right. um, Bob's Insurance, op- yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you're right. You can, you can, you can get uh, some, you know, baseball cards when you buy a policy. It's right. that kind of very small. And they don't have the financial backing to handle a major, major storm. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons they have been going out of business this year is that uh, a lot of these insurance companies, they're regional, so they operate like in the southeast, Mm -hmm. and that includes Louisiana. And people, I don't think, really understand that Louisiana got hit by two really huge hurricanes. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Hurricane Laura in Mm -hmm. 2020 and Hurricane Ida in 2021. Mm Uh, they cause enormous amount of damage and thus enormous losses to these companies in Florida. And then you have some sort of idiosyncrasies in Florida having to do with some court decisions and some laws. The bottom line is that it makes the insurance companies highly exposed to legal claims from homeowners who don't like the settlement offer that they get. So they go to court and they sue and they're able to collect a lot of both damages and legal fees. Um, so the bottom line is that the insurance market in Florida is, is just unstable. And, of course, what happened in Ian this week is, is only going to make it worse. Yeah, and I can't, um, I can't imagine why, if these large companies have realized we can't afford to be here, how these smaller regional companies thought they had a prayer. But that means uh, that... that a lot of this has fallen to the state that uh, Florida itself must uh, is is offering homeowner policies uh, through its Citizens Property Insurance Corporation. You describe it as the state-backed insurer of last resort. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Go ahead. Let me just, so one of the things to keep in mind is that you know Florida had a terrible hurricane season both in two thousand four, two thousand five, but then for like twelve years after that 
there was nothing. Mm-hmm. So if you were a small insurer or thinking of opening up an insurance company in Florida, it looked pretty good because, hey, there were no claims to pay. <laughs> so there were some good times, like I said, until... Uh, until you had, you know, Hurricane Irma in 2017, you had Hurricane Michael in 2018, and mm-hmm. then you had the Louisiana storms in the recent years. So they were good. There was a good reason um, for insurers to try to do business in Florida. And yes, now what's happening is the it's called the the insurer of last resort. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you've ever gotten you know three speeding tickets in a year, you're familiar with that because. The car insurers won't cover you anymore. They say, well, we're not going to cover you. So you go into the state-run insurer of last resort and, you know, pay some crazy high rate. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening in Florida. Mm. The only catch in Florida is that the rates in the state back plan are actually low. They're artificially low. Uh Um, So... It's like, you know, you're a bad driver, so you go into the state pool and you get some very high rate. But here, if in Florida, hmm. for whatever reason, your insurance company drops you, you go to the state-run plan, and you actually get a good rate. Okay. Um, and that, yeah, the issue there is that the state-run plan may not have enough money in reserves to pay off all the claims that it's about to see from Hurricane Ian. Yeah. And if that happens, uh-huh. because it's a state-backed agency, it has the authority to charge a special assessment to both its own policyholders and every policyholder of any kind of insurance company. So really? you could see a special fee, even if you don't have homeowner's insurance, but you have car insurance, you could get hit with a fee. Wow. And, and that has happened before. Yes, uh, that, is, that is a real wow. Um, <laughs> and, and, again, we don't know what the claims will be. Nobody knows if that will have to happen. It will become more clear in the next month. And, and all of this, uh, just to underscore, this has to do with homeowner stuff. This doesn't even begin to deal with flooding, which I wonder, is this one of the reasons why uh, we have seen uh, Governor DeSantis be sort of dodgy over the past 24 hours, trying to sort of separate the damage caused by wind, which would be yeah. covered under those policies that state exactly. uh, insure versus flooding, which isn't? Well, so some a reporter asked him a couple days ago, is there enough money for the state back plan to mm-hmm. pay all these claims? And his answer is, well, I think a lot of the claims are a flood, <laughs> meaning mm, citizens isn't going to have to pay for them. Uh-huh. Um, the question of whether damage is flood or is wind is something that is going to be fought. I mean, literally every single homeowner is going to have that fight. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have the flood insurers going to say, no, 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 it's wind, we're not paying. And the wind insurers going to say, no, 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 it's flood, we're not paying. Oh, and man. I, I, it's, it's a real nightmare for the people who have to live through it. Um, but that's what insurance companies do. Mm-hmm. They try to avoid paying. And so it's going to be one of these things that's going to play out for months and months and um you know, as you as you point out, flood insurance is completely separate, um, and a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people think, well, I have homeowner's insurance, so I'm covered, but right. they don't understand that your standard homeowner's insurance, if you actually read the fine print on uh-huh. page, you know, 348, right. there's that paragraph that says this does not cover flooding, and that's just from natural floods, not flooding like if your, you know, bathroom pipe breaks. Uh-huh. 
And and then there's but the, that's what we're talking about here, natural flooding. Yeah, and then there's the issue of so the the flood insurance you have to get from a completely different insurer. That's uh, essentially uh, federal insurers, um, right. where even if homeowners have it. It's largely for properties in Florida. It's largely for properties on the coast. But as you report, Orlando, Florida, uh, Orlando, Florida, its third largest city experienced up to 15 inches of rain and flash floods in a city with 130,000 households. But only just over 2000 buildings are actually covered by federal flood insurance. That's a coverage rate of one and a half percent. Uh, why has flood insurance fallen almost entirely to the federal government at this point? And, you know, after a summer of these stunning flash floods we've seen in other states uh, from, you know, Nevada to Kentucky to now inland Florida, is there even any way to pick up the pieces for the likely millions of Americans who, who need help here but do not have the insurance to cover it? Well, you have two questions there. First, why is, why is flood insurance offered only by the government? Okay. Uh, simple reason. Insurers need to make money, and they realized literally a, a century ago that they can't make money off of flood insurance mm-hmm. because uh, um, it's, flooding is, is too unpredictable and too catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's impossible to set rates, and it's impossible to run the numbers in a way that they can figure out a way. So they got out of it, and the federal government said, well, we got to step in and, and provide the coverage. Uh, and that began in 1968. And it's important to note that FEMA also loses money on federal flood insurance program. So FEMA likes to say, well, it's self-sustaining and all of the claims we pay for through the premiums, correct? That is not true. A lot of money has come from taxpayers, particularly mm-hmm. since Hurricane Katrina. So to your second question, what now? Um, there will be a lot of pressure on Congress to enact a special appropriations bill Mm -hmm. for Florida and maybe for a few other states that will give, it will be tens of billions of dollars uh, for basically what is called unmet needs. Um, There is a disaster program run by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, Mm -hmm. HUD, uh, and every year, every two years, uh, Congress will pump a bunch of money into that program, and then HUD will send it out to the states, which will send it out to the homeowners to do things exactly like what we're talking about here, to, to rebuild their home. And, and that's so, so that's what's going to happen. The, and, yeah. and that sort of uh, congressional appropriation, is that not unlike the congressional appropriation back in 2013 for Superstorm Sandy that a it freshman exact same thing. C- congressman yes, by the name of DeSantis right. voted against? Twitter, yeah. Yes, it is. It is. Um, these things um, are supposed to be, you know, not political. Disaster aid is, mm-hmm. is generally not that political, of course, until it is, and mm-hmm. every so often it is. Yeah. Um, but, yes, it's the same exact program. <laughs> that DeSantis was against then. I'll bet he's in favor of it now. Now, there have been uh, some lessons apparently learned in Florida, Thomas Frank, uh, since Hurricane Andrew in 1992. There's been improvement of building codes since then. Uh, you reported on, on that a little bit. What difference uh, will that have made now, 30 years later, and in those newly built communities? I think older gr- uh, uh, structures were, were grandfathered in, however, so right. they didn't need to upgrade after Andrew? Well, it could make a potentially significant difference. I think people really don't appreciate how important strong building codes are mm-hmm. in terms of disaster prevention. Um, 
you know, a couple things to understand. As you say, the new building codes took effect um, in 2001, I believe. So if your house was built before then, it was built under not-so-good building codes. But, you know, this is Florida, and there's a lot of new building going on. So I think a pretty substantial percentage of the buildings in Florida were built under the new building codes. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing to understand is that the building codes, the changes that were made, were primarily about wind. Because mm-hmm. it was done in response to Hurricane Andrew, which mm-hmm. was primarily a wind event. Mm-hmm. Um, if your house was flooded, you're probably not going to see much benefit from any new building code. Mm-hmm. Uh, a flood is a flood, mm-hmm. and you know, short of elevating your house, you know, five feet above the ground, there's not much you can really do to protect it against flooding. So it definitely, it will help, uh, but it's not going to mean that this is. Um, you know, there aren't going to be any claims. We have uh, been reporting on our own Green News Report segment for years now, Tom, on on uh, so many of the coastal areas, not just in Florida, but really all over the nation, uh, where, where there has been explosive growth in recent years, despite the increased threat posed by rising seas, climate-intensified storms. Uh, you report on the west coast of Florida, where the wind and storm damage was the worst, about explosive construction there, creating new communities during a long absence of hurricanes. Um, but I'm wondering, as you know, as a longtime climate impact journalist, how uh, how you see that mistake in Florida as it compares to other regions, uh, both in Florida and elsewhere in the U.S., where it seems we've also been making similarly costly mistakes now for decades at this point. Well, yeah. So don't think for a minute that Florida has a monopoly on uh, you know, stupid growth. That right. happened everywhere. Uh-huh. Um, it happens all over the country. A- a- any any state with a substantial coastal area has done a lot of growth, a lot of building on the coast, because we like to live there. And the the, the value of coastal land and the development on pressure pressure um, is, is just something that that officials can't overcome. It's huge. So. You're seeing the same thing happening. You know, I know South Carolina, they've done a lot of it there. Um, Can't overcome it, Tom, but are they going to have to overcome it? I mean, you know, after this storm and and as we are promised so many more, I, you know, there's there's talk, of course, in the uh, in the green community about managed retreat from these coastlines. I know that's wildly unpopular, but how many storms like this does it take before people get the message? (laughs) You know, the thing about these storms is that uh, this is the first major storm to hit Florida in, uh, you know, five years. Mm-hmm. Before that, there was a period of 12 years. So you're talking about two major storms in 17 years. Um, a lot of people are more than happy to play those odds. Mm-hmm. I'll take my chance that, you know, there won't be another storm for a long time, and even if there is, we'll be safe. So it's uh, very, very, very hard. Uh, thing to convince people not to build where they want to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but of course the taxpayers end up paying for, you know, all, all the rest of the taxpayers end up paying for those mistakes, it seems. What actions do uh, experts recommend at, at this point uh, that state and local officials in Florida take to repair the state's broken insurance market? I mean, it's clearly broken at this point. Um, and, and frankly, other states may wish to take notice of it themselves as the climate crisis gets worse. Do, uh, are there any such recommendations at this point? Uh, 
So Florida is really sort of in a class by itself in Mm -hmm. terms of dysfunctional insurance markets. A lot of the attention has focused on, uh, you know, what you call tort reform, um, restructuring the legal system so that you can protect insurers from Mm -hmm. these very large claims they're getting. And uh, that's a reasonable thing to do. I don't think anyone argues against that. The issue is that 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 takes a while to make a difference because the the claims are are a slow process. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, beyond that, I I just I don't know uh, what you can do because Floridians are already paying the highest property insurance rates in the country, and at a certain point. You know, there are equity concerns because, frankly, the rich people can afford $4,000 property bills, Mm -hmm. but poor people can't. So do you really just want to jack up the insurance rates? Say, well, sorry, your insurance bill is now Mm $6,000, even if you're on a fixed Mm -hmm. income. It's a very complicated thing, and that's why the state legislature and the governor have not been able to solve it. And it's it's not a partisan thing. It's just a political thing that's a very hard thing to solve. There is a lot of this, however, Thomas, that is uh, political. I mean, I got to say, as heartbreaking as all of this is with so much suffering, it's also maddening because so many uh, so so much of this, uh, you know, folks like yourself and ourselves have been warning about for years, even the insurance industry itself. They've been pretty loud in their warnings about the risks of climate change, uh, even as politicians largely Republican ones, have gone out of their way to downplay or or ignore or even legislate against these concerns. For example, GOP governors in states like Florida uh, under then-Governor Rick Scott or South Carolina under then-Governor Nikki Haley, as I recall, they actually barred state officials from citing climate change in state reports. Governor DeSantis, as I noted, as recently as last month, was working to bar the state from even considering climate risks in its investment of billions of dollars of retirement savings for government workers and teachers. Seven Florida congressmen, Tom, and and its uh, senator, Rick Scott, have been attacking the SEC for a plan to mandate that public companies reveal the risks that their companies face from climate change. So the disconnect here is is maddening between the politics and the reality. It is just gobsmacking at times. Do you expect that the situation after Hurricane Ian may change that somewhat, or will we soon be back to the same sort of denialist politics as usual once this storm moves on? So I think one thing to understand is that um, a lot of it has to do with the language. The term climate change, uh, it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's toxic to certain people, Republicans, mm-hmm. conservatives. Mm-hmm. But they have other, cha- other terms that they use, like resilience and mm-hmm. uh, things like that that end up being very similar in terms of programs to protect their states. So, uh, you know, Governor DeSantis signed a law a couple of years ago in Florida that created a resilience program for Florida. It didn't use the word climate change because that's mm-hmm. a non-starter in a Republican state. But it did the same thing that a program in a Democratic state would have done with a different name. Mm-hmm. So I think the key here is to just, uh, you know, working, avoiding the buzzwords. And climate change is one of those phrases. But mm. if you call it resilience, then yes, or rebuilding or smart growth, uh, that's, a, that's a much easier way to get the same things done. Um, I don't think that uh, 
suddenly Republicans are going to start to, you know, say that, yes, we're facing climate change, they will say things like, the climate is changing, mm-hmm. as opposed to it's climate change, which is a subtle but important distinction. And yet every single one of them, at least in Congress, voted against $400 billion to make the nation more resilient in the face of climate change uh, recently. Thomas Frank, uh, thank you for your good work at uh, ENE News. You can find uh, that work at eenews.net. And you can also follow Thomas on, uh, on the Twitters at ByTomFrank. Yes, that's by Tom Frank. He writes uh, for E&E News, now owned by Politico, so you'll find his work there as well. Thomas Frank, really appreciates you joining us today and for your good work. Hope you don't mind if we reach out in the future. Yeah, let's talk anytime. Thank you, sir. Okay. Uh, boy, they got a mess. There yes. is a mess in Florida. Yeah, and, and as emergency Coming crews, to the rest of the country, too, oh, by yeah, the way. But definitely. Anyway, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, as emergency crews, you know, are beginning to be able to access some of these hard-hit areas that were wrecked by mm-hmm. Ian, you know, not just in Florida, but in South Carolina and everywhere else that's yep. been hit by Ian. I mean, it's really kind of revealing how staggering the scale of infrastructure damage is mm-hmm. and how we respond to rebuild. Do we re- rebuild smartly if only or had, not? If only you had been warning us about <laughs> the lack of resilience in our infrastructure for the last, I don't know how many years, Desi Doyen. I know. And, you know, and the Trump administration, for example, trying to roll back uh, Obama-era regulations that required federal agencies just in planning for their own facilities and buildings mm-hmm. to uh, include most the most recent climate data about floods you know don't just build to a hundred year flood standard build to a 500 year flood standard because that's what we're getting now right and 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 so it's just remarkable to see how there's this this willful blindness to not prepare for what is coming that we know is coming because of politics now one of the other things that struck me was Mm -hmm. you had raised the subject of managed retreat and that's the idea where because there are going to be places that are going to continue to have these accelerated intensifying climate disasters, mm-hmm. not just from floods, but also, you know, coastal sea level rise mm-hmm. and wildfires, that um, managed retreat is a concept that academics are discussing now. And how do we begin this conversation that is going to definitely have to happen? Um, well, you have to, we have to wonder, you know, if they're going to put in billions to rebuild exactly where they were, exactly where they got hit. If they're just going to get hit again, who is going to ensure that? Never mind the money that we might be able to get from, you know, the federal government, from taxpayers to rebuild. But who who would ensure that? Because it's going to happen again and more frequently. Yeah. And, and long term, of course, Florida has a very spectacular specific case. It's got uh, it's built on porous limestone. Mm-hmm. So rising sea levels, which are rising right now, are already starting to inundate some of Florida's drinking water systems, and that is going to be a problem that's going to happen long before sea levels rise high enough to actually, like, say, inundate Miami. It's going to contaminate their water supply first. And this is a really a conversation that we really ought to be starting now, because um, you know, we see how unwelcoming Republicans are to the current migrants from <laughs> other countries mm-hmm. that are fleeing climate disasters. It's going to be really, really interesting to see how other Republican-run states 
states are going to react to millions of Floridians trying to <laughs> escape climate disasters uh, that are migrating out of Florida to other states. Not to mention all of the migrants that are going to be coming from all over the world. Oh, yes. Escaping the, uh, their own uh, climate crisis in their own countries. Exactly. I'm sure it'll all be fine. Hey, uh, speaking of the dangers of our climate crisis, some new internal documents or some newly revealed internal documents from the big oil companies were recently obtained by a congressional committee, and they are pretty telling about where the where big oil stands on climate change, even as they say one thing very differently in public than they actually do in private. That story and a new big oil company image ad that you need to hear is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Documents recently obtained by congressional investigators show that oil industry executives privately downplayed their company's own public messages about efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and industry-wide commitments to push for climate policies. I know you're shocked. I hope you're <laughs> sitting down for this, uh, this news. The internal documents, according to The Guardian, showed companies attempted to distance themselves from agreed climate goals and admitted to, quote, gaslighting the public over purported efforts to go green and even wished critical activists be infested by bedbugs. The uh, communications were unveiled as part of a congressional hearing held in Washington, D.C., where an investigation into the role of fossil fuels in driving the climate crisis produced documents obtained from the oil giants ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and BP. And these are not decades-old documents. These are recent documents. These are recent lies about climate change. Varshini Prakash, the executive director of the environmental group Sunrise, said, quote, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they wish bedbugs on you, <laughs> then you win. The revela revelations were part of the third hearing held by the House Committee on Oversight and Reform on how the fossil fuel industry sought to hamper the effort to address the climate crisis. Democrats who lead the committee called top executives from the oil companies to testify last year during which they denied that they had misled the public at all about anything. But the new documents are, quote, the latest evidence that oil giants keep lying about their commitments to help solve the climate crisis and should never be trusted by policymakers. That, according to Richard Wiles, the president of the Center for Climate Integrity. If there is one thing consistent about the oil and gas major's position on climate, he says, it's their utter inability to tell the truth. 
Several of the emails and memos within the released trove of documents appear to show executives, staffers, lobbyists internally contradicting public pronouncements by their companies to act on lowering planet heating emissions. You have probably seen their commercials played, uh, you know, during uh, cable news shows, for example, about how much they care about the environment. Turns out what they're showing on those commercials is not actually what they're saying privately to each other. Exxon, which recently announced profits of nearly $18 billion for the first uh, three for the three months uh, through June, more than three times what it earned in the same quarter last year, has publicly said it is, quote, committed to the Paris Climate Agreement to curb <laughs> global heating. However, don't laugh. However, the uh, documents include an August 2019 memo, for example, by an executive on the need to, quote, remove reference to Paris Agreement from an announcement by industry lobbyists that Exxon is a member of. Uh, he said that that could create a potential commitment to actually advocate on behalf of the Paris goal. <laughs> Wait, what? If you say it out loud, you actually have to commit to doing it, and they absolutely are not going to do it. That's a what they keep saying. A separate note on a 2018 Exxon presentation also admitted that biofuels derived from algae, which they tout as something that they're doing to curb climate change, uh, but in the uh, private memo it says, quote, that effort is decades away from the scale that we need, despite the company promoting it for a long time as a way to lower emissions. Shell, meanwhile, has committed to becoming a, quote, net zero emissions business by 2050. And yet the documents show a private 2020 communication in which employees are urged to never, quote, imply, suggest or leave it open for possible misinterpretation that net zero is a shell goal or target. Shell has, quote, no immediate plans to move to a net zero emissions portfolio over the next 10 to 20 years, the memo added. So I know it's shocking to hear them saying one thing in uh, public and then uh, actual documents from them reveal something else. The hearings, of course, were attacked by Republicans uh, as a method to, quote, wage war on America's energy producers. And the oil companies involved have complained that the documents do not show the full picture of their stance on the climate crisis. Well, we would hate for the oil companies not to be able to show their the full picture of their stance on uh, on the climate crisis. So I thought that maybe we can help by airing one of those public service announcements that you, yes, frequently see coincidentally on the many cable news outlets that air them to who they give tons of money to run them. This one is for Chevron. It features, since this is radio, you can't see it, but it features beautiful footage of gorgeous landscapes, underwater rainbow-colored coral reefs, a super slow close-up of a hummingbird dipping into a flower on a sunny day, delightful children and playing with their dogs and families gathering together. It was posted to Twitter on Thursday by Academy Award-nominated director of The Big Short and Don't Look Up, Adam McKay, who tweeted the video on Thursday asking, has anyone seen this Chevron commercial? We at Chevron believe that nothing is more precious than life. 
and that the most precious life of all is the dead kind that has been compressed for hundreds of millions of years under massive rocks until it magically becomes oil. Oil that we can refine and sell as gasoline so a cool-ass tank can crush a clay hut or an airplane can take a businessman 3,000 miles to have dinner with someone or whatever all the while releasing greenhouse gases that are transforming the planet right this second into a hellish George Miller film. Because at the end of the day, we at Chevron straight up don't give a single f about you, your weird children, or your stupid ratty ass dog. And we have billions and billions of dollars to pay for this commercial time, this cheesy footage, and this bullshit music. All so that you will be lulled into a catatonic state that makes you forget one singular fact. Chevron is actively murdering you every day. See, the human brain can only deal with so many things at once, so these emotionally loaded scenes will always push aside other thoughts like, Chevron is murdering me. It's just how our brains work, you meat puppet who exists only to feed us profits. Chevron, it's hard to even comprehend how little of a f we give about you. And this commercial also applies equally to Axon VP Shell, our delinquent lapdog media, and any hack politician who's trading the future of life on this planet for filthy money and oil stocks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well done, Chevron. Uh, and they didn't even have to pay us anything to air that. Nope. You're welcome. We got to get out. My thanks to our guest today, Thomas Frank of E&E News, to our producer, as always, Desi Doyen, and yeah. to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us keep on help keep us on your public airwaves until Chevron pays up. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>